Hawaii. My name is Michael Benner, and today our topic is Buddhism. A lot of folks in the West believe Buddhism is a religion. I suppose there are Buddhists who also think of it as a religion, whether they're living in the eastern part of the world in Asia or in the United States and may be relatively new to Buddhism. There are people that see it as a religion or believe that it takes the place in their life of religion, but I don't think it's uh, really quite as accurate to call Buddhism a religion as it would be to refer to it as a philosophy. Uh, and what I mean by that is in the in the mythology of Buddhism around the original enlightened Buddha, a prince from India about 500 years before Christ named Gautama Siddhartha and um, the mythology around Siddhartha is that there were only a handful of questions that he would never ask, uh, respond to, rather, that he would refuse to respond to. And one of those questions had to do with the existence of God. And so we don't really have any sutras or written references where Buddha himself talks about God. Now, like Christ, Buddha never wrote anything down. So we don't have the writings of uh, Gautama Siddhartha or the writings of Buddha. I have a nice little biography, if you will, um, by Herman Hesse uh, that I encourage you all to read, something called Siddhartha, nice book, almost mandatory, if you're interested in the field, and a, a quick and easy and a fun kind of read. I recommend Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. But um, I think it's bigger than religion because it goes beyond the sense of a personal God. One of the big problems we have with Western religion, and by that I mean Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which are very closely allied. Of course, Christianity spun out of Judaism for Christ was a Jew, Jesus was a Jew. And then um, a few hundred years later, about 500 years later, the prophet Muhammad um, compiled what is now known as the religion um, of the Muslim or the, uh, the concept of Islam. And its belief systems and its guiding document, the Koran. So you have the Koran, you have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament, you have these three monotheistic religions, <clears throat> excuse me, all of which, each of which, tends to refer to the existence of a creator or a god as being personal. And even some takes or spins on religion that, or Christianity, um, Judaism, and Islam will refer to um, God, the Father aspect, as impersonal, and God, the Son aspect, um, Christ, for example, in Christianity, as the personal. But 
the problem that you have is God is then viewed as a being that has a form nature. And any being with a form nature, any any thing, if you will, I don't like the word generally, but this is a good place to use thing, right? Like no thing or something, anything that you see as having form is by definition separated from every other thing uh, having form. And so here we have a problem. We have an insistence not only in these three religions in the Middle East and West that God is one thing, that in and of itself is not a problem, but one separated thing that is very, very far away, living out on the edge of the universe or uh, invisible to our eyes, but nevertheless in the shape of a man. Uh, it's, that's a beautiful painting uh, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel of God reaching out. But that's a picture of an old white guy, you know, uh, lacking feminine traits, uh, lacking ethnicity or a sense of all ethnicities, uh, meaning no ethnicity and no gender. Um, and for 2,000 years ago, or I guess it's more like that's a Renaissance-era painting. So for 500 or 600 years ago, that's a pretty nice concept. But for a modern age, the idea of a divine, celestial, uh, spiritual creator standing separate from its creation, uh, that creates all kinds of problems. So one of the things that we benefit from when we look at any Eastern philosophy, whether it's Hinduism, Brahmanism, um, uh, the Buddhism that really spun out of Hinduism to some extent, uh, the Taoism of China that's very closely related to both Hinduism and Buddhism, but Buddhism especially, Jainism similarly, and um, a number of other um, philosophies, even Confucianism which is mostly a compilation of Chinese folk wisdom, is devoid of a sense of God as a separate being, but rather um, a container, if you will, a transcendent totality that contains all that is, but is also in everything. The, the mystical definition of God or the Godhead is really a multiple definition. And probably the simplest way I've ever seen it referred to is um, all in one and one in all. It's uh, not unlike the three musketeers, <laughs> actually. You know, all for one and one for all. <clears throat> That's what we have here, is that uh, God transcendent is the idea of every seemingly separated thing in the universe is contained by the body if you will, of God, all right? That God is a container. It is the totality of all that exists and more, right? <clears throat> this is a bit of a problem for Westerners because then God contains adversity. God would contain evil. God would contain disease. And for the particularly uh, 
oh, I don't know, unsophisticated or simple-minded. Uh, don't mean to say this in a derogatory way, but for those people, the idea that that God is good and evil, that God is the potential of all things, that God includes not only grace and love and blessing and kindness, but also adversity and challenge and conflict and and illness and that's much more challenging than the idea of a beneficent um, creator that is only peace and love. Then you have the problem of, well, evil obviously exists, and in Western religion personified by the devil, by the devil, and uh, what kind of God is it that struggles with evil? It's not a very powerful God. So this has never been reconciled in the three Western churches the temples, the the mosques, and the churches of Islam, Judaism, and uh, Christianity. But it's not an issue in the East, where you have Buddhism and these other philosophies and quasi-religions saying, oh, no, God is essentially the totality of all that is, and separated from, from nothing, for God is ultimately no thing, you see, just as the ancient Egyptians said, the one thing or the one life. And then the complement to that in Eastern philosophy, including Buddhism, um, is that everything is, um, well, now, now I have to be careful, that, that the one is in everything, which would be God imminent, and that both things are true. So let me go over that carefully that every seemingly separated thing that exists, uh, your car keys separated from your car, (laughs) this object from that object, this planet from that planet, this star system from that galaxy over there, from this galaxy cluster over here, every seemingly separated thing really exists within the body, the will and the love, of the most high, the philosopher would say the absolute, a religious person would say God, okay? And then the complement is, and that one thing is in every seemingly separated thing, and that would be God imminent, that no particle is too small, so no, no molecule, no quantum particle no subatomic particle is too small to exclude the presence of divinity. So everything in the one is God transcendent. The one in every seemingly separated thing is God imminent. You need both of those. If you're going to move beyond the idea of God as a man on a cloud with a castle in the sky. And that's the challenge. Whatever religion you're aligned with, if you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, uh, a Hindu, um, a Buddhist, uh, a shaman, uh, a follower of animism, whatever, you know, a philosopher, you have to deal with this idea of transcendence, okay? And the consequences, I'll say, of seeing God as separated. If God lives outside of its creation, then you can do all kinds of horrible things to the creation. You can 
you know, drop bombs on Ko'olade. They used to do that out here for years. You sit on the south shore of Maui and listen to the American military dropping bombs on what the Hawaiians see as a sacred island. Why? Because Hawaiians are mystics and they see everything as sacred, right? So you set off a nuclear weapon out in the Arizona desert or New Mexico desert and say, well, nobody lives there except some spiders and snakes. And, well, it doesn't matter. That That is sacred. God lives there as well as on the mountaintop or the valley, right? It's all sacred. Life is sacred. It also suggests that God is in every one. And every bit of tissue, every sinew, every molecule of of every human being and every creature, uh, no matter how big or how small the creature is, that it is an expression of divinity. Uh, again, in Eastern philosophy, it's not that God is in these manifestations so much as that these manifestations are God. You know, a Westerner will say, well, God created the animals. Uh, an Easterner will say, no, the animals are a manifestation of God. That is God, the lion. And this is God, the bear over here. And this is God, the snake. And this is God, the eagle. And this is God, the cloud. And this is God, the pine tree. And this is God, the dandelion, just as noble as God, the rose, don't you see? So to compare religion in the West to religion in the East, <clears throat> is really comparing apples and oranges. And um, that's a big part of what we're going to talk about today is we introduce the basics, the most basic elements of the philosophy of Buddhism from, again, India, about 400 B.C., almost 500 B.C., 5th century B.C., a philosophy that uh, did not last long in India, oddly. Um, it's not that popular in India compared to uh, Hinduism, but certainly has become very popular in Indonesia, uh, Thailand, for example. Um, the Tibetan Buddhism is well known because of the Dalai Lama, a very magical form of uh, Buddhism. There's Hinayana Buddhism, there's Mayayana Buddhism, there's uh, Zen Buddhism, which is very popular in Japan, uh, the Buddhism of China, um, which again is very closely allied to Taoism, pronounced with a D like David, Taoism, but spelled with a T like Tom. You see that word T-A-O, that's pronounced D-O-W, the Tao or the flow of all things, very central to Chinese mysticism and Chinese philosophy. So with that as an introduction, comparing Buddhism a little bit to uh, Western religion, let's talk about some of the basics, and then a little later in the uh, class today, we'll go to your comments by text and by telephone, okay? Also want to remind you, these programs are all in replay perpetually, and you can pick them up easily at my website, theagelesswisdom.com. The T-H-E is an important part of that, an essential 
and necessary part of that URL. So it's the W's dot the ageless wisdom dot com. Click on the home page to go inside, and then the web teleconference is the link that will take you to the upcoming program, usually two or three days before. And all of the past programs, the archive, all past programs are there, with the exception of one. There, <laughs> there is one program that we did on the hermetic philosophy of, uh, of ancient Egypt, where we had a problem with the recorder, and that was never posted. But, you know, <clears throat> you can pick that up as a podcast. And I often fail to mention that not only is this class that we're doing live now, today, on August the 9th of 2009, this class and all the others that we've done does stream as podcast. And you can pick it up for free at the iTunes Music Store or pretty much any major podcast directory on the Internet, like Podcast Pickle, for example. If you just type Michael Benner in podcast, it'll come up. And you can subscribe to it that way. And the the only one that's missing, the Hermetic Philosophy uh, program that's missing from my website, does stream as a podcast. And um, I could tell you why I can't put it back on my website, but you'd be bored and, and it's just too hard to explain all the technology. But you do have that backup, except for that one program. They're all... Uh, posted on my website under web teleconference. All right, and there's a gadget there too where you can forward these programs to your friends. And I can't tell you how much that will mean to your friends, and uh, the benefits you'll get, and the benefits that we'll get. It's a total win-win. This is just some of the free stuff that we do at our primary site. My partner Steve Snyder and I have a site at FocusedPassion.com where we do a premium audio program. I'll tell you a little about it at the end of this uh, session today. But that's why all of this stuff is free. So help yourself. There's articles. There's free stuff. If you poke around these two websites, this program is free. The replays are free. Forward them to as many people as you want and uh, won't cost you a nickel, all right? So that's the good news. All right, that gadget's uh, obvious right under the right on the archive page. Uh, you can't miss that. Again, theagelesswisdom.com. Click on the home page to go inside, and then web teleconference. There's also a button there when you first come in that you can use to sign up for the newsletter. All right. Any introduction of Buddhist philosophy has to begin with the Four Noble Truths. And uh, time permitting, what I would like to cover today, besides the Four Noble Truths, is the Eightfold Noble Path, or the Noble Eightfold Path, which is really how you put the Four Noble Truths into action. Then we'll talk about some lesser-known characteristics or philosophies, uh, the four boundless states, the three characters of existence, actually we'll do that, and then the four boundless states, 
and um, time permitting, we may go uh, beyond that to uh, seven factors of enlightenment and the five hindrances that get in the way. We'll just see um, see how we do here. But uh, it's pretty hard to pick up a book on Buddhism without finding some reference to the Four Noble Truths. This is like, I don't want to compare it to the Ten Commandments but it's or the Emerald Tablet, but it's pretty basic to Buddhism. It's about as basic as it gets. It is a diagnosis, a cause, a treatment, and a prescription. Okay? That's one way of looking at it. That the Four Noble Truths are, first, a diagnosis, secondly, a cause, Third is the treatment, and four is the follow-on, the prescription, okay? And the diagnosis of the human condition, the first of the four noble truths. You ready? Trumpet fanfare, drum roll. This is no surprise to any of us. Suffering exists, all right? Uh, There is no one who has not, does not, and will not know suffering in this world. This is a world of many things. This is a world of love and beauty and peace and occasionally even a bit of justice and fairness. Every once in a while, a little bit of kindness creeps out. But that's largely what we do with what's done to us. And left to its own devices... Life can be very cruel. It can be very hurtful. And it's guaranteed that you will suffer loss. That because of the heartfelt attachments that we have to our parents, to our siblings, to those in our community, to animals that we domesticate, uh, they die and we know loss, and we grieve, and we suffer. Now, there's many other kinds of suffering besides that, but let's just keep it simple. People you love will die, and it hurts. And throughout history, there have been, maybe even, maybe you in your life have at some time tried to steal yourself or gird yourself against that loss or those losses. Sometimes young people, after their first broken heart, are so devastated that they refuse to become that vulnerable again. They love in a superficial way thereafter, never wanting to really extend themselves or allow the person that they love to have access to their deeper nature for fear that when they're betrayed, or lied to, cheated upon, or the object of their love, the source of their love, seemingly, just dies, that they'll go through that broken heart again. What people find, generally, as they mature, is that it's worth it. That we're built for this, that we can manage this, um, and that the benefits of love Uh, make it worthwhile. Uh, I saw a quotable quote the other day that um, I like a lot. I put it in a few emails that said, uh, 
Nobody ever said life would be fair, only that it would most likely be worthwhile. And I thought that was provocative, if nothing else. Maybe life is not fair because of the first noble truth. The suffering exists. And uh, most likely you will suffer. But we have three more noble truths, right? So let's look at the others and see what we can do about this given, number one, this primary hypothesis that suffering exists and that life is suffering. Number two, which is the cause, so to speak, that we've diagnosed in number one, suffering arises from attachment to desires. Okay? You might say, well, is loving your mother or your father or loving your family, or loving your lover, even. Is that attachment? Is that desire? I always thought when the Buddhists talked about desire and attachment, they meant to material things. Can I become attached through small d desire to a relationship? You can if you believe that your love is an exchange between you as a separated being and that other separated being. If you think the love you feel in a relationship is coming from the other one and that your job is to either initiate that love by giving love to them or to reciprocate in the wake of love you've received from others by returning it, then you are attached at a desire level. If you understand that love, as a capital L word, exists everywhere equally present as conscious awareness, and that the love you feel when somebody says, you know, I really love you, or, hey, how about we have lunch? Give me your phone number and I'll give you a call. <laughs> and you feel that special Oh, they're interested, that wonderful little sparkle inside. If you think that that comes from them, as probably 98% of humanity does, that may be a little high, but uh, that's the common belief, that love is an exchange between people, right? You love me, I'll love you. I love you, hopefully you'll love me. It's not true. When someone says, I love you, or, or, or expresses a kindness to you, and you feel this affinity or, or uh, attraction to them, what you're feeling is love as divinity coming through you, not at you from another person, but through you from your source, which is the most high, the most divine, the creator, the source, or sorcier, sorcerer, the source, or what religious people call God and what philosophers call the absolute or the Godhead. All right? If you go shopping for a puppy or a kitten and you see one you like and you want to take home because you just love it, you the puppy seems to love you, so you love it. And you think that the love you're feeling came from the puppy. 
Well, that's pretty ordinary, pretty common belief system. I wouldn't say you're wrong, but I would point out that that's a very incomplete view. And when the puppy dies in eight or ten years, you're going to experience major loss and suffering. But if you understand that that puppy's loving attention to you stimulates in you a quality of peace and safety that allows you to experience divine love within your presence, losing the puppy is going to be a very different experience. I, I, I won't say you won't grieve, right? You'll experience some loss and some grief, but you won't lose the source of your love. And if in the same way, or a much larger way, somebody who is, let's say, your spouse for many, many years dies, it's going to be a horrible thing. But you won't lose the source of your love, because you'll understand that each of you were stimulating or evoking spiritual love or divine love from within you. If you got nothing else from this class today, consider, for as long as you can do this, the next day or two, that every loving situation that you're in, with people or your pets, right, or just general life and affairs, is an evocation of love through you. And if somebody turns and says, I love you, uh, thank you for this kindness, and they give you a hug, and you feel good about that, you feel this little bubbling up of love, consider that it did not come from them, that what they did was stimulate a love in you that you had temporarily become unaware of because of the stresses of your daily life and affairs. Okay? I mean, all emotional feelings are evoked from you, not done to you. But this is a huge, and for most people, a very difficult lesson, at least in the West. People in the East, it's in their culture, they're much more likely uh, to take responsibility. Now, I'm using a really broad brush here, and it's hard to generalize, but having said that, I just generalized, I just did. Third noble truth, which is the treatment, is suffering ceases when attachment to desire ceases. Now, again, to many neophytes, uh, people who are new to Buddhism, they say, well, then uh, what I have to do is desire nothing. I have to um, stop being uh, this uh, materialist that wants always a, a newer car or a bigger car or a, a fancier house or diamond rings or expensive clothing or a membership in the country. I have to give all that up. And if I have it or get it inadvertently, well, so be it, but I cannot desire it. Otherwise, I set myself up for the suffering, Right? Because one of the basic principles we have yet to get to in Buddhism and Eastern philosophy is that nothing lasts. <laughs> Everything in physical dense 
um, fades and passes, that uh, everything is, um, oh, there's a word I'm blocking on here, that, um, let's see, not uh, finite, well, I'll think of it in a minute, that everything is in decay, that everything that humans make, at least, is going to go away at some point. It's going to die. It's going to get old and rusty. Uh, nothing. Impermanence. That's the word. <laughs> Thanks to my higher self. Impermanence. All things are impermanent. Okay. The only things that are permanent in life are the non-material or spiritual things like love, kindness, um, the qualities of love, uh, peace of mind, compassion, uh, forgiveness, generosity. These things are infinite and eternal. They can be seen as permanent. But all material things <clears throat> are impermanent. And that's what desire refers to, any impermanent material thing. So when you refuse to attach to material things or even to the belief systems, to the thoughts and the feelings that we clutch and hold so close, I've got to have this and I've got to have that and my life has to look a certain way and I have to create an appearance of things for other people. All that clutching and all that holding on all of which is fear and anxiety and stress. The Buddhist philosopher says is nothing more than a setup for the first noble truth. You are now guaranteeing that suffering not only exists as a natural condition, but will continue to exist because of your efforts to avoid suffering by gathering material things around you. Right? Suffering ceases when attachment to desire ceases. So suffering exists because of your attachment to desire, number two. So number three is stop it. <laughs> Cut it out. Stop, uh, stop needing. Stop the desire, and the suffering will stop. Of course, the Westerner says, well, then I won't have anything. I won't have any cool stuff. I won't have my computer. I won't have my iPod. I won't... Are you sure? I won't have my big screen TV or my car. Well, yeah, you will. You can have that without desiring it. Sometimes it just falls out of the sky. <laughs> People give it to you. You can have things without desiring them. Uh, some of the finer points, but this is what's laid out in the Four Noble Truths. And finally, number four, freedom from suffering is possible by the practice of the Eightfold Path, okay, which is next. So that's the prescription. And so here are the noble truths, and now the path or the way. Again, in Taoism, this is what the Tao is. It's the path or the way or the flow. It is the middle pillar in Kabbalah. It is that which connects. Uh, like the the chakra system or the spine or the caduceus uh, connects heaven to earth, the most high to the material, um, God to man. Uh, suffering 
to nirvana. The path in Buddhism is eightfold. And it breaks into three parts, wisdom, morality, and meditation. And so the first two steps on the path are known as wisdom, as in the ageless wisdom, and they are right view and right thought. So all of the steps in the Eightfold Path are about getting your head and your heart and your action right. Each step in the Eightfold Path begins, at least in English, with the word right, meaning correct, not right hand as opposed to left hand, right? Or good as opposed to sinister, bad, but correct. Get it together. You need, for wisdom, first, a right view, which is a belief system. You need to have an accurate belief system of how the world works. Secondly is right thought. This is replacing desire to a large extent with aspiration. Now, sometimes in philosophy, excuse me, sometimes in philosophy, you'll see desire written with a small d, and maybe even in the same paragraph or the same page, desire written with a capital D. If you see desire in this context written with a capital D, that's a reference to aspiration. And it's vertical in nature. It's climbing Jacob's ladder. It's moving up this path from the material to the spiritual. I'll just leave it at that. That's aspiration, or capital D, desire. The desire that's the problem in the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism is horizontal in nature. It is the small d desire, if you will, for stuff. Like, I'd be happy if only I had more stuff. I need a bigger house. Why do you need a bigger house? Well, it's more impressive. Then people will love me more. They will think better of me if I have a bigger house. I need a newer car. I need, uh, I need to impress people, right? Or I need uh, this or that or the other thing. I need to satiate my desires. And again, this is where, right back to the beginning now, the first noble truth, it's that desire that creates the suffering in the first noble truth, as expressed in the second noble truth, desire is the problem. Desiring to be the best you can be spiritually is not desire, that is to aspire. So think of desire as horizontal, I want more of this material stuff, or even more love. Not divine love, not spiritual love. I want um, romantic love, and I want sexual love. That's desire. Uh, spiritual love is to aspire, okay, when you turn vertical. And by the way, for those of you who may be still new to mysticism, I, I like to point out that this is the pre-Christian cross, where the horizontal member of the cross represents the horizon of the material world, the material existence, and, in this sense, desire. Whereas the vertical member of the cross is the chakra system, the spine, the caduceus, 
Jacob's Ladder, the Stairway to Heaven, that vertical member, the path, the Tao, that connects uh, heaven to earth, or nirvana to the suffering. And that's the path of aspiration. Desire is horizontal. To aspire, or capital D desire, if you will, is vertical. Okay? So those are the first two steps in the noble path. The right view, to get an accurate belief system. And I've given you a real basic introduction to that. And then right thought, which is to change your desire to aspiration. The next three steps in the Eightfold Noble Path, steps three, four, and five, have to do with morality. And this is right speech, right behavior, often called right action or correct conduct, and right livelihood, how you make your living. All right. So right speech is basically um, be positive, be kind, and be loving. Uh, don't say anything uh, negative or disparaging about other people. Um, don't try to teach a pig to sing. It just annoys the pig. <laughs> that kind of stuff. You know, if you haven't got, what's that old axiom? You know, our parents all told us, if you haven't got something nice to say about somebody, well, don't say anything. Uh, the problem is that we're trained by mass media, by a political culture, that is um, hostile and cruel and even hateful. Our whole political culture is so filled with hate, always has been. The hooliganism that we're seeing now, where people are being organized to shout down fellow citizens, right, to prevent debate from happening, this hooliganism, uh, the storming of the of the recount vote in Florida eight years ago, organized hooliganism. We have a long history of that in the United States and certainly in many other countries around the world. Uh, this, of course, would not be an example of right speech. That would be wrong speech. So a spiritual person could never behave that way. And the idea that many of these people claim to be a spiritual born-again Christians or or chosen uh, Jews or um, there is only one God and his name is Allah, Muslims, the idea of superiority and we're better than you or we're right and you're wrong is ironically not right speech. It's one thing to think it, it's another thing to say it out loud. So right speech is simply to be loving, to be kind, to be gentle, to be positive and if you haven't got anything good to say, then just don't say anything, right? Uh, the idea is to perpetually take responsibility for your feelings rather than project them on other people and then blame other people for your moods and your affects. With right speech, you can ask other people to support you. You can ask them to maybe change the way they talk to you. And I think that's fair. But it's primarily our responsibility as conscious, sentient beings to set the example. Number four, right action. This is your behavior. This is the follow-on to right speech. So you behave in accord with the first three steps, right? So you get your beliefs straight, number one. 
get your aspiration oriented to the vertical rather than desiring more stuff, number two. Three is right speech. Four is right action, your conduct, your behavior. And five is right livelihood. This is where you have to look at what you do for a living. And not only what you do, but how you do it. Um, you could say, well, <clears throat> a particular career, uh, I am in the, um, I'm in the war game. I'm in weapons. And I sell weapons. Well, it's hard to imagine any way you could do weapon sales as a form of right livelihood. I suppose somebody could argue um, that they need the weapons to hunt, but then I'd suggest considering being a vegetarian. I'm not sure anybody could really make a case for having to have weapons, but I'm using an extreme example here. Um, if you're in an industry that you know pollutes and the best way to maximize your profits is to poison the local river or stream or or to, to pretend there is such a thing as clean coal, for example, and to spend millions of dollars to convince Americans that there is an option called clean coal when it's not yet been invented. There is no such thing. And the demonstration projects are are not cost effective, so that would be a lie. That would be an example of failing to live up to this ethic of right livelihood. Now, another example might be, well, I'm an attorney, uh, but how do you, who do you defend, and and what kind of attorney are you? Or it could be as simple as. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a salesman. Well, that could be right livelihood or not, depending on what you sell and the way you sell it and <clears throat> who you try to sell it to. So right livelihood is not a matter of some careers being correct and other careers being wrong, but just an extension of the right speech and right action that precedes it. Okay? So those three together, three, four, and five, right speech, right action, right livelihood, are part of the morality stage of the Eightfold Path. Wisdom, morality, and then meditation would be the last three. And this is right effort, right mindfulness, and right contemplation. Again, right meaning correct effort, correct mindfulness, and correct contemplation or meditation. Now, effort is very similar to action, and livelihood, it's a little farther down the path because it refers to all of your efforts, every effort, anything that's left over, <laughs> you know, that goes beyond speech, action, and livelihood. It's sort of like intention. To have the right attitude or the right intention, uh, to really want the best for all concerned, that would be step six, right effort on the Eightfold Noble Path. And seven and eight go together. The idea of mindfulness and contemplation or meditation. Um, it's hard to summarize this, but there are many forms of meditation, one of which is contemplation. However, in the Buddhist tradition, 
um, usually contemplation and meditation are used synonymously. References to emptying the mind of all thought, or more accurately, to stop attaching to those thoughts and those feelings. And understanding that thoughts and feelings are forms or things, just like physical things or physical forms have size and shape and color and Two physical things cannot occupy the same space at the same time. Well, in Eastern philosophy, thoughts are things. And feelings are things. They're a little more malleable. And there is a thought stream or a train of thoughts that has feelings blended in with it. But although it's completely absent in Western philosophies and religions, Eastern philosophy, Buddhism, and these others that I've mentioned also, have as a very clear premise this idea that you are not your thoughts any more than you are the weather. Just because you're standing in the rain and getting wet doesn't mean you are the rain. The rain is being done to you. The Buddha says the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. Or on our show a few weeks ago in the suppositions of NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, we had a similar one. We said the map is not the territory, right? The finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. You are not your thoughts any more than you are the clothing that you wear or the house that you live in or the people that you know. Now, this is terrifying, I know. <laughs> because if we think, you know, we've worked all of our lives to get to a place where we think that's who we are. And then to realize what a, how, how much that pseudo-philosophy, this false philosophy is failing us, we cast about desperately to to try to find something that's true and real, and, and what we find out is that we have to start all over again. What's left? If I am not the objects in my life, if I am not the material stuff I've gathered around me, if I am not my money and stuff, if I am not my relationships, my God, Michael, if I'm not my thoughts and I'm not my feelings, what is left? What is left is mindfulness. And mindfulness is a product of meditation or contemplation that leads. Seven and eight sort of feed each other. These things all feed each other. But mindfulness comes from meditation, and meditation is a practice of mindfulness that allows you then to, as you open your eyes and move out into the world, remain as mindful as possible uh, until such time as you get distracted and caught up in a world of form and then you forget so you go back to the meditation to remind yourself uh, I think the simplest way of describing mindfulness is that it's the awareness of meditation carried into the wide awake scattered multitasking normal consciousness from the meditation, which is the narrow, awake, um, quiet, calm, still 
like the glass lake, so peaceful, until your emotions become more and more and more calm, and your thoughts become fewer and fewer, less frenzied in number, and you begin to have experiences of three, four, five seconds without any thought or any feeling, and yet you remain. And then maybe eight or ten seconds, imagine, of being aware without any thought interrupting that awareness or any emotional feeling pulling on you or tugging at you. You see, it's not merely a matter of refining yourself to the point where you can more easily manage those thoughts or manage those feelings. Those are steps toward the ultimate in mindfulness and contemplation. But the Buddhist practice is to let go of that altogether. To find the gaps, one of the methods is find the gap between the thoughts and go out through the gap. And if you don't meditate, then you're not going to have any idea what I'm even talking about. But it's absolutely thrilling to be able to calm the emotional nature and quiet the mind to stop attaching, not only to physical things, but even thoughts and feelings as forms, and to remain the awareness, the pure, unadulterated awareness, that then has a thought, but knows it is not the thought, that the thought, like Rod Serling's teleplays, are submitted for your approval. And instead of being driven by your thoughts and feelings, well, I did it because I felt like it or I thought it was the right thing to do, you can, <laughs> you can have the enlightenment, the awareness of, I thought this and I decided it was not right thought. It was not coming from a right belief. It was not going to lead to right speech or right action. And so, instead of attaching to it, I let it go. All right. There's your Eightfold Noble Path. Now, it's almost to the top of the hour, so I'm going to mention these uh, next sets very quickly, just sets of information. Again, this is nothing more than the most basic introduction to Buddhism as philosophy, right? And because of the nature of this wisdom school that we do every Sunday, uh, this is not exclusively a Buddhist practice. We talk about, and already have today, Christian mysticism, Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry. We talk about Jewish mysticism, the Kabbalah, uh, the Zohar, the Book of Splendors. We talk about the mysticism of Islam, which is Sufism, of the, the pagans and the pre-industrialized civilizations, the mysticism of the, of the shaman. Uh, the medicine woman and the medicine man, the huna, and um, all of these various philosophies. The hermetic philosophy I referred to of of, uh, of ancient uh, Egypt. We we look at comparative religion. We look at philosophy in a comparative way. We're looking for an overview of philosophy as a search for truth. And that's what I want this class to be about. If this is the first time you've ever been here, we've done about 80 of these, almost a year and a half. 
maybe a little over a year and a half now. And I don't want you to think this is a class just on Buddhism. Much as I love and respect it, um, we're embracing everything. We want it all. Right? It's just a very beautiful system that because of an accident of birth, most of you don't know very much about. And uh, if you were born in uh, Japan, you might be exposed to Zen. And if you were born in Indonesia you might be, or, or China, you might be exposed to Buddhism. Or if your parents listened to Alan Watts, maybe, <laughs> maybe you knew something about it. So we don't end here by any means. This is just such beautiful stuff. All the religious traditions have really beautiful, um, inclusive, and harmonious mystical traditions. But fundamentalism, where these religions so-called are broken down into their most, how can I say it, literal and fundamental pieces, um, that's where it gets separative, and my religion is right and your religion is wrong. Um, there is none of that. I just gave you this Eightfold Noble Path, right view, right thought, right speech, but a Buddhist would never say you're wrong. You know? They might say, how's that working for you? <laughs> but they're not going to tell you that you're wrong and that they're going to heaven and you're not. Uh, they if you had nothing kind to say to them, uh, they would probably say something kind to you and then just move on. So let's look at the three characteristics of existence and the four boundless states real quickly. Then we'll leave it at that. We'll go to your typed-in questions on the web. And if you want to call with a question, the number is on the web page right above the player on the right side. Any one of those numbers. When prompted, enter the conference ID and... Uh, if you want to raise your hand, just press star 2 once you're online. That'll raise your hand. The three characteristics of existence are simply um, transience or impermanence, which we talked about a few minutes ago. The idea that if you exist in a physical form, you exist in a world of impermanence. Now, I'm going to add from my own philosophy that there's at least two kinds of impermanence. There is the impermanence of decay when humans build something. When human beings fashion materials, make objects, those objects are always in decay. The idea that you could own a home uh, without upkeep, <laughs> in a hundred years it will fall to the ground. It's in decay. That brand new shiny car, you could pay thirty thousand or three hundred thousand. It's in decay. It's going to rust. It's a bucket of bolts. It won't last. And in the natural world, impermanence is a little different. However, it's alive. The natural world is a living impermanence, where it is always in change, always in flux. But there is a a rebirth to it. Um, one of the one of the goddesses in the Hindu pantheon is the goddess Kali. She's somewhat like Medusa in the Greek pantheon, and she represents. Some would say destruction. I think a better word is dissolving or dissolution. Dissolution to dissolve, right? 
uh, to melt, to melt away, um, uh, like fall into winter and then spring comes again. So everything has its seasons, and the impermanence of nature is cyclic, whereas the impermanence of the objects and institutions of human beings is decay. But it's all impermanent, and none of it ever lasts. you got to know that, right? Especially when some advertiser comes to you and says, brand new, limited supply, get yours now, this will solve all your problems. Know that every object you buy is in decay from the minute you break it out of the bubble wrap. It's not going to last, right? Kmart shoppers? Okay. The second of the three characteristics of existence is sorrow. There will be sorrow. You might as well learn to deal with it, because there will be the loss that we talked about early in class today. You will love, and you will lose the appearance of that love, which is grieving and loss. And even if you know in your heart of hearts that the love that connected you is spiritual and eternal and infinite and always will be, there still will be a sense of loss, grief, and some sorrow. That's just one of the natural characteristics of existence. Now, a Buddhist teacher might add, the sorrow is necessary, the suffering is not. All right? You will have sorrow. You need not suffer. You can experience sorrow without suffering. How? Go back to the Eightfold Noble Path. All right, get it straight. And the third characteristic of existence is selflessness or unselfishness, and this means that you have to get over yourself and get past the idea that ego is who you really are. Ego is the part of you that identifies with the separated material self. And we've already decided that these forms, these things, are illusionary. So the fact that you're limited to your physical body or to your apparent intellect um, is an incomplete understanding. You are much more than that, much, much more than that, just like you are not your car and you're not your house. That's hard enough for many people, but to say you're not your ego, <laughs> you're not yourself, right, you are much more than that. You are all that is from a particular point of view. You are the most high, the most divine, from a particular point of view. And that's a reference to soul that Buddhism doesn't talk about except in the most advanced teachers teaching teachers. Do they even talk about soul? It's not a word that is used very often in Buddhism but it's a reference to not an individuated self, but a particular point of view and a need for the divine to express in multiplicity and in many diverse forms. Okay, You can see how each one of these could be a class unto itself. And as for the four boundless states, these sort of speak for themselves, so I'll leave it at this. Loving kindness is one. Compassion, three is joy 
or sympathy, sympathetic joy. And four is equanimity, which is to be calm, um, to be steady, to be even-tempered. All right? Loving if you if you wrote nothing else down today, these would be good to write down. The four boundless states. Um, this is the sense of being that we look for to replace the self, the sense of alienation and separation that we've been discussing today that leads to all of the, the suffering and the heartache. You want to aspire to a state of loving kindness of compassion, of sympathetic joy, that's empathy, that's uh, compassion, and equanimity, which is just to be calm and relaxed and, and steady. Okay. So, that's as much as we have time for today in, again, what is just a basic, the most basic of introductions to Buddhism. And, you know, we did say there are many kinds of Buddhism, but because this introduction is so basic, this pretty much covers it all. So, let's see. I've got some people on the line, but nobody has their hand raised, so we won't go to the telephone unless or until one or more of the callers raises their hands. So, instead, we'll go to our typed-in questions and see who's online. Uh, let's see, Jim on the Big Island is with us today. Uh, I don't get to the Big Island, so I'm a little slow on the pronunciations of some of these places. Jim is in Keao, 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 Don't know, Jim. Something that's pretty close, right? Um, he just says good morning, Michael, and good morning, Jim, friend from LA from many years ago who's on the Big Island. We're going to be doing a seminar in Hilo, Steve Snyder, my partner for so many decades, and myself, on Saturday, September 5th. So if you have plans to be in Hawaii, uh, if you're going to be visiting here, or if you live here, or if you know somebody in Hawaii who would benefit from personal development and empowerment seminars, uh, let them know. Uh, let's see what's right now. We're just posting the um, the web page, so probably the best thing until we get the web page up would just be to email me at my initials at theagelesswisdom.com. So if you know somebody, give them that email or send me their email address. Either way, at mb at theagelesswisdom.com. My initials at theagelesswisdom.com. And as soon as we get these websites posted in the next day or two, um, you'll not only have access to all of the details, but a way to register online. And uh, we can give you a nice little discount, too, if you come as a listener of this program. In Albuquerque, Diane is with us again this week. And Diane, hello. It's nice to hear from you. She says, aloha from Albuquerque. Looking forward to class. Uh, perfect topic. And hope all is well with you. Blessings, Diane. Thank you, Diane. And, um, oh, Jim on the Big Islands added a couple of uh, short little notes. He talks about the union of opposites. That's that middle element of the Trinity we were talking about. 
was very big in Taoism and Buddhism. And um, let's see, in Gary, Indiana, Theodore is with us, T3, the thinker. Theodore, the thinker, says, what's up, Michael? Uh, he's enjoying the class, says it's sounding good to him, and aloha from Gary, Indiana, Indiana, Gary, Indiana. Uh, first time I ever took a train was from Michigan City through Gary into Chicago, and I bet that train's still running, uh, Theodore, that, that old electric train. That would have been in the mid-50s. And uh, Lorelei in Tucson, Arizona is with us again this week, and she says, Aloha, Michael. Great class and topic. She says, When my boss criticizes my performance at work, I always react defensively. What's the best way to handle criticism without being defensive? Thanks, peace, and love to you and Doreen. What a wonderful question. Um, to not be defensive uh, is, I think, first of all, to look at who are you defending and why. If I were a Buddhist teacher and went first and always and or even foremostly to Buddhism, I would say that the you that you are defending does not exist. Now, that's a pretty pithy statement. Because, again, if I say the you that you feel so strongly needs to be defended, my God, I've just been attacked and degraded and discounted and, and I'm emotionally hurt and upset and you want me not to defend that part? Yeah. How? By realizing that the only part of you that can be hurt is the false self. The mystic says the only thing that burns in hell is the false self. Right? The higher self is pure love. And from its elevated perspective would have compassion, believe it or not, compassion for that poor, pathetic boss that is having such a miserable time that they're treating you in this way. Now, that may be a big order. I, you know, Lorelei, for you, I think you can do that. <laughs> because even your ability to ask the question suggests that you're open to that elevated point of view. I am not the part that hurts. I am not the part that she just insulted. I know that part, the name that I use is that part. I look in the mirror and I see that part. There's Laurel I Hatch in the mirror. And that's the part that is hurt and feels discounted. And I've got that part too. And I've never met a spiritual teacher, no matter how elevated, no matter how lofty their point of view, that didn't have that part that could completely transcend the self at all times. And if they say they can, guess which part of them claimed that they could? Exactly, the false self. <laughs> Dresses up and pretends to be the Swami or the Guru or the mystic. Beware of people who call themselves enlightened or who describe themselves as masters. Because those who know don't say, and those who say don't know. So, this is why we have a problem with the, you know, guru one day, 
uh, stockpiling weapons and uh, buying two dozen Rolls Royces the next day, you know, or being holy one day and sleeping with children the next day because the ego can dress up like the soul and pretend that I'm beyond all of that ego stuff. No, you're not. Neither am I. Uh, Christ may have been, uh, by all appearances, but I don't know what was going on in his heart of hearts. There seems like he had a couple of tough days, at least, you know, overthrowing the tables of the money lenders. Probably could have handled that better. I don't know. Hate to judge a master. The whole point of the story of Siddhartha becoming the Buddha is to realize, uh, to wake up to enlightenment, but does that mean that he was always aware of ego and could always isolate it and carry the ego with him, but always be in that state of nirvana? I don't know. See, I don't. But for you and I and virtually everybody else, having named a couple of exceptions perhaps, um, it's a battle. It's a daily battle because you just... It's just like getting drawn into a TV program <laughs> or sucked into a movie that begins to feel so real that you feel like you're part of it. That's what ego will do. So the short answer uh, is to say I am not the person that hurts. And any part of me that feels like it needs to be defended and fight back is the false part. And so do a meditation. You have those skills, Lorelei, where through breath and a feeling of being safe and relaxed and letting go, you transcend that sense of separateness and that need to defend the lower self and look at your boss from a point of view of compassion. Spend just five or ten minutes in that place and I think you'll be amazed the next day when you go to work how you look at that mean old boss. <laughs> right? I mean, the meditation needs repetition. You need to do it every day because you'll slide that slippery slope right back into being hurt. But don't fight fire with fire. Don't defend what doesn't need defending. Right? There's nothing wrong with you. You're doing your best, and if you know that your intention is good, look at that Eightfold Noble Path, right? You have right beliefs, right intention. Is your speech correct? Are you practicing loving kindness and compassion? And thanks for the great question. From England, Jacob Martin is with us again this morning, and for him it's uh, evening. I think it's about 10.20 at night in uh in most of England, if not all of England. Jacob says uh, hello and greetings. And cheers, Jacob. Thanks for being with us. Uh, and let's see. Donna in Albuquerque is on again saying she really enjoyed class. Her first message was before class started. You can do that here. Leave messages before they start. And John, who also goes by the name Zen, um, says it's pronounced Kea'u. Kea'u. And that's on the Big Island. Again, we're going to be in Hilo on the east end of the Big Island on September 5th. So send me an email if you want more information on that. Well, let's do a short little uh, meditation, a quick little meditation. 
And I'd just like you to consider that the only thing better than meditating on your own is meditating in a group. I'd like you to consider that at any moment on any given day, on this tiny little earth planet, um, considering the vastness of the universe, it's likely there are many billions of planets inhabited by sentient creatures, but we don't know that. So just think of the five billion people, a million times 5,000, that are on this one little planet here called Earth. Funny they don't call it water, we're mostly water. On this Earth planet, and at any given time, millions of them are meditating or contemplating. So every time you meditate, close your eyes and relax, I want you to consider that you're entering into a group meditation, for it's always true. And if you're oriented toward the esoteric, you can either even consider the, the souls that are not incarnated as being in a perpetual meditation and therefore part of the group that is meditating and you can enter into that group mind and that group heart. And in the simplest sense, if you've ever been in a classroom like we have here, where you've got 10 or 15 physical bodies in a room and meditated, you know the difference. A lot of that just comes from the awareness that you're in a group, that you could feel even on a, you know, a mountaintop inside a cave on top of a mountain in the Himalayas. You could feel that group if you had the awareness that I've just suggested. The idea that at any any moment, 24-7, there's millions of people in meditation. There's millions of people also who are not in meditation, who are grieving and suffering, whose hearts are aching, who are doubled over from loss, from hunger. And somehow that's okay with the rest of humanity. You know, part of this compassion is very difficult, but the rewards are outrageous. So let's just do a little short group meditation to conclude the class today. And if you would now, provided this is a good time for you, Close your eyes and relax. If you have a particular method of your own, you can use it. If you chant, begin to chant. If you have a yantra, an icon or an image that you visualize, even if it's just a place of perfect peace in nature, begin to visualize that now. If you have a single word that you use as a mantra, like love or peace or God, use that as you breathe, a couple of slow, deep breaths at first. Ah, feel yourself relaxing, letting go of all attachments. Your attachment to the material world, to the forms of thoughts, to emotional forms, to belief systems, and to the way things have to be, and release it all, dare to let go of it all. 
to be free and allow my voice to guide you briefly into a place where your body feels very safe and relaxed. And you sit still, balanced, and receptive as if there's a funnel on the very top of your head. And loving kindness and wisdom precipitates down into the crown, fills your body, which radiates and emanates in all directions out into the world, but also grounded into the earth. And you are the medium or the conductor, the path of least resistance between the above and the below. And as the middle element that meditates and relaxes and feels safe. You become like a spiritual lightning rod, a path of least resistance, and thus the flow of wisdom, of love and light is enhanced and increased as it pours through you, through your instrument, and out into the world. Imagine yourself, however it occurs to you, being filled emotionally, for example, filled with love. The very word fulfillment, being filled with a sense of safety, adequacy, in a sense that not only are you, in fact, enough to handle life's challenges, but that you're built for this, that you are less a human being than a spiritual being in a human instrument. And you can handle this easily. Still body, calm emotional nature. And a quiet mind. Still body, calm emotion, quiet mind. 